This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Hey there, cat lovers. Welcome to Nine Lives with Dr. Cat. I'm Dr. Katherine Prim, and I'm a small animal veterinarian and your host for Nine Lives with Dr. Cat. I have with me Dr. Josh Middleton today, and he is a representative of Vetikinol, which is a company that makes veterinary products, and he has so many interesting products that address so many things that I feel like my listeners would be interested in what he has to say. So we will be right back with Dr. Josh Middleton. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Dr. Katherine Prim, and I would like to make you aware of some products that I've discovered. Dr. Elsie's Pet Products. So you all know that I have a cat named Scamper, and Scamper is a little bit sensitive. So I have to choose sort of special stuff for Scamper. Dr. Elsie's Ultra Litter has been kind of a godsend for us. It's made with clean ingredients and it's low on dust, so it sort of addresses the needs that Scamper personally has. You can feel really good about choosing Dr. Elsie's pet products because they're veterinarian formulated and they're tested. So they combine science and the love for pets to meet the needs of even the most sensitive pets like my Scamper. Here's the really good news. You can get a rebate. Dr. Elsie's will pay you up to $20 for your first bag of Ultra Litter or any Dr. Elsie's Litter by visiting drelsies.com forward slash Dr. Cat. That's D-R-E-L-S-E-Y-S dot com forward slash Dr. Cat, which is D-R-K-A-T. So check it out. Give it a try and get up to $20 back. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Nine Lives with Dr. Cat on Pet Life Radio. So I have Josh Middleton with me today, and Dr. Middleton goes all over the country and lectures about taking better care of pets. And so I would like to welcome you. Hi, Dr. Middleton. Hi, Dr. Cat. How are you today? I am doing great. I'm really excited because you know lots of things that my listeners would be interested in. So can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, no, as you said, uh, my name's Dr. Joshua Middleton. I was in general practice initially in kind of the greater metro Detroit area and still work some uh, Saturdays and things of that in, the, in that nature in the clinic. And then full-time, though, the last handful of years, I've worked as a technical services veterinarian for Vetokinol. And as you mentioned earlier, that gets me out in the field and kind of around the country quite a bit and uh, doing some talks, uh, dinner talks and things and uh, interacting with a lot of veterinarians really around the, the country and a little bit around the world since we're a, a French company that's growing here in the U.S. and such. And so that's a little bit of the background. So you help veterinarians know how to manage some of these things. So I know for a fact that you know a lot about behavior issues. So I kind of want to just let you go and tell about some of your experiences with hearing from veterinarians and some of the things that you know about behavior problems in cats. 
Yeah, certainly. Behavior is a bit of a passion of mine. And, and while we talk about really all of our products in our portfolio, behavior is a, an area that falls more so under my column. And I spend some extra time putting efforts towards that. And uh, obviously, that relates a lot towards what we see every day in, in general practice in, in your clinic and, and in mine and such as well. And that's been really a, a big part of this job for me over the last four years is, is getting to delve deeper into that side of things, talking with a lot of behaviorists and working with them and such, and just always learning more about behavior. So the great thing is, is certainly how that plays back into uh, when we're in the clinic and, and seeing these cases and such. Uh, as you mentioned, it's very common that we see these things. And that uh, is something that when we look at these cases, it's interesting to me that there's certain stats and certain surveys and things out there that'll show that up to 90% of dog and cat owners think that their pet may be fearful of something, yet only maybe 10% of them will actively bring that up to their veterinarian. And so it's interesting, the big gap that's there that you know, they absolutely think that there's something that might be, you know, problematic for their pet, yet it's not the main reason they're at the veterinarian. And so a lot of times it doesn't get mentioned. And I think that's something that, you know, we'd love to see talked about more, whether that's pet owners just being willing to kind of bring those things up or us as veterinarians sometimes digging that information out a little bit more and getting that out in the open and talking about it. Because like with most things, I think that getting to the problem early is half the battle. And the earlier we can get there, typically the better success rates and the better significance of the success that we can have. Well, I agree with you completely because I know that there are some statistics. I don't know exactly what they are, but I know that behavior issues is a cited problem for why a lot of pets are surrendered to shelters. So we've actually added some behavior questions to our initial questionnaire at my animal hospital because I think maybe my listeners and other cat owners don't realize your veterinarian does care about if your cat is eliminating outside of the box or scratching inappropriately or doing those things. So that's kind of what I want to talk with you about today is making sure that everybody knows there are resources and products and things that we can do. Yeah, I think that's a great way to go about things on your end, Dr. Cat, is, is just opening up that conversation. And I think that a questionnaire, like you mentioned, you know, it can ask about a lot of different things, but making sure that the, there's some questions within there that are going to ask about anything that's changed at home, any problem behaviors, anything that's concerning to the owner. And it might just jog their memory for even if they think it's a minor thing, but it's something that's changed, then they're going to put it down on the paper. We might kind of key in on that. And we're going to talk about that in the exam room. So I think that's a wonderful way to get started and kind of digging this information up and, and bringing it to the forefront a bit so that we catch it early. We don't allow it to kind of grow into a more significant problem when it's harder to fix. So that's a great starting point. And then at the same point, you know, you mentioned there are lots of things that, that we can do. There's resources available for us and such. And then we can talk about even, you know, options in terms of, you know, behavioral supplements, pheromones, products and that that are available and maybe help us along. And those types of things can fit very well with problems that are kind of lower on the ladder. They're less severe problems. And maybe we reserve pharmaceuticals and medical intervention uh, for further up that ladder when we have more significant issues 
but we can start talking just a little bit about resources. And, you know, I, I reside up north in Michigan. So this is one that I'll ask you if, if you refer to or that you utilize. But just south of me down at Ohio State, there's the Indoor Pet Initiative. Uh, it used to be called the Indoor Cat Initiative, but now it's called the Indoor Pet Initiative. So it's, it's more inclusive, has multiple species in there. But if you go to indoorpet.osu.edu, lots of good information on there on environmental enrichment techniques and things that we can do around our homes just to make life kind of more enjoyable, more enriched for these pets. And in particular, I think some wonderful information about cats on there. And there's things for veterinarians. There's things for pet owners in general and lots of good information at our fingertips. I mean, that's just one good resource. There's certainly others as well. Something along the lines of Fear Free Happy Homes has a lot of good information for pet owners as well. And so in today's day and age, it's nice that we really do have some wonderful resources such as Fear Free Happy Homes, the Indoor Pet Initiative and and others as well. And your veterinarian. So even if your veterinarian doesn't ask you about behavior questions, it doesn't mean you can't bring them up because as a veterinarian, I want to hear if your cat is doing something that is disrupting your bond with him or her. So we do care about that. By all means, I think that's extremely important. And, um, you know, the more that we talk about it, the, the better off we'll be in the long run. As you mentioned earlier, you know, behavioral problems are one of the it's certainly the top reason, I would say, why dogs and cats, you know, are relinquished to shelters and such, or in some cases, you know, maybe even euthanized if it's uh, a severe issue, certainly sometimes with severe aggression cases and that. But it's a real problem. And, and rather than, let's say, true medical conditions, we look at behavioral problems as probably the number one reason why a pet would be rehomed, relinquished to a shelter or potentially, sadly, euthanized. So I think that maybe it may be inappropriate elimination that's the number one cat behavior that people don't like. But I want to talk a little bit about that because I see cats that are not using their box. And there are some things, you may have some thoughts on that. If anyone out there is listening and, and you think, well, you know what, cats just sometimes don't do that. That's actually not a normal behavior. Cats like to eliminate in the place that they're used to. So if you're seeing that, let's get your opinion, Dr. Middleton, about some things that could be causing that. Yeah, I think in these cases, uh, a lot of the times, and again, it's a common thing that that presents in general practice. I'm sure you see it on a a regular basis, uh, certainly as did I and and still do I at this point in general practice. We always want to look, is there possibly a medical cause there? So we'll always work them up medically just to ensure that there's nothing there because you know, if there is something as simple as, let's say, a urinary tract infection, well, let's treat that urinary tract infection. So a lot of the times, some blood work, a urinalysis, and things of that nature, just a basic medical workup is in addition to our uh, general good physical exam and such at your veterinarian. And then from there, if we turn up nothing medical that could be the primary cause behind that inappropriate elimination, you know, then we kind of look at the environmental side. Sometimes, you know, is, is stress involved in such. So fear, anxiety, and stress could play a role here. Just their environment in general, kind of inadequate resources and things could be behind these types of problems as well. And so I think that this is an area that we commonly talk about again and again when we talk about environmental things that we can do for these types of cases. 
in some of the things that I'll say to my clients when we're looking at inappropriate elimination cases when there hasn't been a medical cause, and you feel free to add in because there's, there's always more, but when we look at these, I would always tell them the gold standard, or I'll say at least the old standard, the things we were taught was the number of litter boxes, kind of an N plus one type of scenario. So if we have one cat, you know, we probably want at least two litter boxes. If we've got two cats, we want probably at least three litter boxes. And I would add to that and say, think about the levels of the house. How many do we have? If there's three levels that the cat has access to, I'd probably want at least one on each level of the house so that it's easy access. Maybe think about a, you know, an older geriatric cat, maybe having some difficulties getting around, some arthritis and that. If the urge hits and we've got to go to the bathroom, the last thing we want to think about is, oh my gosh, I've got to make it up two flights of stairs to get upstairs where the litter box is and things. So keeping them in an area that's easy access for the cats if and when the urge strikes. And at the same point, what else about the location there? And I think maybe sometimes too often we want to put the litter box where it's convenient for us, not as convenient for the cat. And when we look at that, it's probably the wrong way to go about it because many times that means it's kind of tucked away. And think about if it's maybe in the basement away from everybody, we don't have them elsewhere, or it's next to the furnace. If you have a little furnace room and things, imagine if you're a cat and you're going to the bathroom, everything's nice and quiet. You step into the litter box and then the furnace fires up and suddenly there's this scary noise. Now there's a negative association with the litter box. And maybe you're a little bit afraid to go back to that that area and urinate in there, defecate in there. And so thinking about not only the number of boxes, how many do we have, what levels of the house, but also where exactly are we putting them? And then in addition to kind of those types of considerations, we also think about the type of litter box. Is it big enough for that cat? If your cat's a little bit bigger than, let's say, the standard cat, maybe the typical litter box isn't big enough. They want a little room to kind of be able to turn around in there and maneuver a little bit. So uh, I would always say err on the side of going a little bit bigger. Then also think about how high is the step or the profile of it to get up into that litter box. Again, I may be thinking about the geriatric cat in this scenario that if it's hard for them to step up and into it, well, then it's something that they're probably less likely to make the effort and go through the discomfort of getting in there. Other things to think about is even a covered box versus an uncovered box. And for years, I had your typical standard litter box, you know, the plastic covered box. And at one point, I think this was just out of vet school, I looked and I said, I want to get one of those self-scooping litter boxes. I thought, how great will that be? I won't have to scoop litter as much. And I waited for one to go on sale. And once it did go on sale, I went out and I bought one. And it promptly broke, probably within about a month, because it just couldn't handle the amount of urine that my two cats typically produced. And so it got bogged up and the motor broke on it. But I kept that litter box for a good while because even without the self-scooping nature, sitting side by side with the old standard litter box, I found that both of my cats would go to that one nine times out of 10 rather than the old box that I used to have, the the covered version in that. So when they one out of 10 times decided to go in the old one, it was probably my fault and I hadn't kept up on maybe scooping the litter enough. And so they said, all right, that one's kind of dirty. I guess I'll go to the clean one, even if it is my less preferred box. So wait, stop right there because I think cleaning is huge. So how often do you think I should be scooping Scamper's box? 
Yeah, that would absolutely be my next point or natural transition there is that ideally I would clean the litter box daily. Now, as I just kind of said a moment ago, did I always do that? No, not all the time. Sometimes life gets in the way and things and, and sometimes we can get away with it, but particularly when we have a problem. So if we already have a, a cat who's maybe urinating outside of the box and inappropriately eliminating, then we really have to double down on our efforts there and that. And I think daily would be ideal. In some of those cases, if you have a really finicky cat, maybe even more than once a day. Because for some cats, even just having kind of one bowel movement or one urination in there, they might decide, I don't think I want to go in there. But once a day is a good standard, in my opinion. And again, sometimes life happens. We don't always get it daily. But erring on the side of more frequently is certainly better. And if we have an issue going on, like inappropriate elimination in our household, it becomes even more important to double down our efforts there and make sure that litter box is staying clean. And then maybe even taking a step further to say once a month, I'd really do a deep clean on that litter box and kind of get rid of all the litter, scrub that, clean it out a bit overall, start fresh. And probably once a year, we could consider getting a new litter box in its entirety. I agree, but don't clean it with bleach. Cats yeah. do not like bleach. <laughs> Absolutely. That kind of nose blindness with bleach, um, something that, you know, for their kind of olfaction, it, it can lead to some problems there, at least short term, and kind of a, a nose blindness uh, resulting from the stronger bleach smell for them. So I see a lot of cats that are inappropriately urinating, and I even see several that are inappropriately defecating as well. And when we have exhausted the medical testing and, and I've convinced the client that no, they don't need antibiotics, the next step is to talk about some behavioral things and some products that we can implement as well as all of those things that you said. Those are the, the tips that I give clients right in my exam room. But there there are also some products and some pharmaceuticals as well. Can you just talk a little bit about those? Yeah, certainly. Uh, it's a nice area because we have a lot more tools in our toolbox, you know, today than we had even, you know, 10 years ago. And so a lot of nice options. And to me, I always like to think about kind of a, a ladder here overall. When we're talking about fear, anxiety, or stress, or kind of behavioral issues in general, talking about a stress ladder. So thinking on the maybe the lower left hand, you can think about, you know, subtle early changes or problems. And you're working your way up and to the right for mild problems, moderate issues, and then up to kind of severe issues. And to me, I think in general, if we're thinking about, let's say, behavioral supplements or pheromones and things like that as a sole type of option, you know, they fit best with kind of the lower half of that ladder. Uh, as I said, maybe real early along, when we're way up that ladder, you know, that's where we take a step up to kind of the, the true pharmaceutical options that we have. But I think that really good tools in our toolbox with some of the pheromones and, and behavioral supplements and such, especially for the lower half of that stress ladder. And that fits a little bit with what we talked about earlier, that I think getting to these problems earlier opens up the window for greater successes, you know, a higher frequency of the time in that. And, you know, one of the products that uh, we make at Vetokinol is called Zilkeen. And Zilkeen has been something that even before I worked with Vetokinol, using it in general practice, uh, a great tool in my toolbox. And it's something that for me, it was a, a first line type of therapy. 
So when I had maybe a, a mild case of something come in or something that was even, you know, very early that we were able to draw out on our questionnaire, just having those initial conversations, you know, we could talk about this is a great starting point because it's a it's a more natural type of option. It's very safe. It has a wide safety margin, um, highly palatable. So although it comes in a capsule form, you can open this up and sprinkle it on the food. And I would say that even most cats, if you just sprinkle it on dry food, most of them will eat it that way, let alone if they're a canned food eater. And of course, if we mix it in with some canned food. So with cats, and especially if there's any fear, anxiety, or stress, that's a tremendous option because it's easy to get into them. We don't have to stress them further by trying to, to pill them and, and cram something down their throat. So it's a, a nice, easy, convenient option that has really good data behind it and testing behind it and, and beneficial in multiple species, including there's on the zilkine in particular, dogs, cats, horses, some anecdotal evidence in some other species. And, and the active ingredient in zilkine actually has some good data on the human side as well. And the active ingredient that we're talking about here is alpha-casosapine. And so it's something that is milk-derived. And when we look at zilkine and talk about alpha-casosapine, what we're looking at is basically bovine milk. And we're focused on the casein component of that. And it's it's isolated and it's then broken down into the component that yields alpha-casosapine. And so if you think about, you know, just what we said there again, milk derived, it's more of a behavioral supplement, not a pharmaceutical. And I think that a lot of people are open, you know, to that type of option, particularly if the case fits, if it's, you know, not a real severe case in that. And it's a great starting point that, you know, might be something that really significantly helps. And sometimes if it's a more severe case and it may give us some benefit and then we can maybe layer it in along with some pharmaceuticals if we need to. And, and even at that case, many times, maybe we can use a little lower dose of the pharmaceutical, stay away from the side effects that we might sometimes encounter there and take that multimodal approach. So I love it as a first line option. Again, I think the benefits being it is um, highly palatable, has a nice wide safety margin, a first line type of therapy that people are generally very receptive to. And then further up the ladder, you know, maybe sometimes we use it not as a sole therapy, but something that can be combined as a multimodal therapy along with pharmaceutical agents as well. So the theory behind it is that it is a protein in milk that makes babies feel calm, right? That's correct. So the early research on really alpha-casosapine was, you know, you look at infants and you think, well, why are they so calm and content after they breastfeed? In part, I would always look at that and say, well, I do think there is a component of there's a feeling of fullness that kind of feeds back. But at the same point, when they zeroed in on kind of the neurochemistry here, they found that this alpha-casosapine was what was found in the brain to have that calming type of effect. And Basically, it's a GABA agonist is how it's acting. And so GABA is the most common inhibitory neurotransmitter in the mammalian brain. So for us or for dogs and for cats, et cetera, um, it's something that sends that feeling of, of calm, sends that message for calm. And so in the case of infants, they're breaking down that milk protein differently than you and I would. And so you and I will break that down with the enzyme called pepsin more so, whereas infants in the first days or weeks of life, they'll break that milk protein down, that casein down, more so with trypsin as opposed to pepsin. And then that shifts 
later along. And so you and I don't yield alpha-casosapine when we drink milk because of the way that we break that milk protein down, but infants do. And so that's what's happening here is we're kind of mimicking what would happen in that natural setting for a newborn, whether it's a human infant, a puppy, a kitten, etc. And that's what allows us to yield that alpha-casosapine. And then from there, of course, we're doing it in a more concentrated manner than what would really happen, um, you know, naturally. So our brains remember what it was like to be a baby and they recognize that substance. So that's really cool science. I'm, I'm excited that somebody looked into that because I love zucchini and it is safe and they love it and it's affordable and it's something that's easy to do kind of along with cleaning the litter boxes and the other things that you talked about. It's just another tool in the toolbox. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And it is definitely something that uh, we can use it in different ways. So when we talk about short-term or as-needed things, so I would say, let's say we've got a, a patient that's relatively normal in their day in and day out life, not much going on problematically, but now they're going to be faced with a challenging situation. So this could be anything. This could be, we're adding a new pet to the household. This could be, you know, we're about to have a baby and the new baby's about to come and, and maybe wreak a little bit of a havoc on their normal routine in their normal environment. This could be a trip to the veterinarian. Anything like that or big parties, loud noises, fireworks, things like that. So anything where we have kind of a relatively normal individual, but something challenging is about to come, you can use something like this short term and as needed, a couple of days in front of, you know, that inciting event and then use it throughout that. And you can stop it cold turkey at that point. So probably 65 to 70% of the time that I've used Zilkeen, you know, over the past, I would say roughly six years, I used it in that short term as needed type of situation. The rest of the time I used it chronically because maybe there was something more going on every day. It's a behavioral issue that's there all the time. So rather than that normal individual who's about to be faced with something that they don't like, it's more of a, okay, now we've got something that's a problem every day and, and it, you certainly can use it safely daily and long-term in those types of cases as well. So to kind of sum it up for my listeners, if you have a cat that is not using the box or doing any other strange behavior, it's important to mention it to your veterinarian. So that's your first stop. The next stop is cleaning out your litter box every day, if not more. And and Dr. Middleton and I understand that life happens, but do your best. Mm -hmm. And um, also make different types of litter boxes available so that your cat can sort of tell you what they like and what they need. And then there realize that there are products like Zilkeen that can safely help your cat deal with stressful things. Is there anything else? Am I missing anything, Dr. Middleton? No, I think that's the biggest thing that you summarize it very well. And I think that I can't reiterate enough that, you know, bringing things up to your veterinarian, even if you think it's a, you know, a minor behavioral thing in that we do, we want to hear about these things. Dr. Cat and I, you know, certainly would much rather both of us receive that information, be able to have that conversation at that point, you know, rather than, well, we're just, we're here for the vaccines, everything's going fine at home, and we're not able to draw that out and talk about it because I really, truly do think that if we talk about it early, it allows us to have those conversations, that pet's going to be better off in the long run, and it's not going to be a problem that gets away from us and escalates up that ladder and many times what happens then is that it's something that, well, it's been going on for three years. 
we didn't bring it up and talk about it before, but now I really need it fixed because it's been going on for three years and I just can't bear it anymore. In many cases, that can be something that can push people to the brink of, you know, maybe relinquishing that pet and such. So extremely important that if you think there's a behavioral change, by all means, please bring it up to us. We want to hear about it. And then we can direct you even from there as we have some conversations to some of those useful resources and things that are out there and available to us. So that's a perfect segue because I was going to mention the indoor pet initiative that you mentioned. If you can give that web address again. Yeah, that one's uh, indoorpet.osu.edu. And even though I'm a Michigan State graduate, uh, I've got to give props to the folks down there at Ohio State with the Indoor Pet Initiative, and uh, they do a wonderful job and, and have some great information available there. Well, I really appreciate you taking time to talk with us today. Very, very informative. I hope that all of my listeners that are dealing with any of these issues now feel a little bit more empowered that there are things they can do to help. And and it's not going to mean that they have to surrender their pet or, or get to the point where the bond with their pet is broken. So thanks again, Dr. Middleton. Thank you, Dr. Cat. It was a pleasure to be with you and uh, hope to see you again soon somewhere down the line. Oh, I'm sure. Also, I want to thank our amazing producer, Mark Winter, because he makes this show happen. And I want all of my terrific, loyal listeners to go out and have a perfect day. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.